look at the way our bodies work. We can, you know, I can walk, right? But I can then jump on a bicycle and then I can go home and jump on my skateboard and then I can jump on rollerblades or a pogo stick or a trampoline. All of these are totally different motor plans for my motor cortex. Like my cortex, again, it's locked in darkness, right? And so the very first time as a child when I got on a bike, it says, whoa, what, what do you mean you've just replaced your legs with two wheels and I have to pedal and do this stuff? Figures it out. It's not that hard. It's, it's really flexible as a system. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again. Breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. So David Eagleman, huge welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. It is absolutely great to have you here. And before even doing your bio, I just wanted to tell folks a little bit about how how we met. So I bought this tablet, which I haven't actually checked in with you on yet to see if you've been enjoying it. But I bought a tablet called a Remarkable. It's like a kind of like an iPad that that you can write on that's supposed to have a paper feel. I didn't particularly like it, so I put it up on the market to sell here in the Bay Area. And um, a very charming, familiar-looking person came to buy it. We were chatting a little bit. I went back inside and, and was saying to my wife how, how nice and seemingly intelligent the purchaser was. And then you sent over the Venmo or the PayPal or whatever, and I saw your name pop up <laughs> as David Eagleman uh, and ran back outside to say hello. So a lovely coincidental meeting. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. We're here together in, in Stanford a week later. I appreciate it. Big time. Terrific. It's a pleasure to be here. And by the way, I've enjoyed the, you know, the thing is I've got a million pieces of paper all around my desk and that's why I decided to get everything consolidated onto one location. Good, good. I'm glad you've been enjoying it. I'm glad you've been enjoying it. So for folks who don't know, most do, for folks who don't know, you are a neuroscientist, a New York Times bestselling author, a TED speaker, a Guggenheim fellow. You are the writer and presenter of The Brain, which is an Emmy-nominated TV series that asks what it means to be human from a neuroscientist's point of view. You also teach here at Stanford University and run a neurotechnology company, Neosensory, which I'm really excited to touch on more. And you direct the Center for Science and Law, along with having authored eight books including international bestsellers, some and incognito in your newest book, Live Wired. Myself and Stephen, I was telling Stephen that we're doing this podcast and he was kind of confused at how you managed to pull all that off as well. So we're going to have to grill you on your personal peak performance tactics at some other point. But to kick us off today, I wanted to um, mention a quote from one of my favorite books, which is one of your books, Incognito which is instead of reality being passively recorded by the brain, it is actively constructed by it. So I would love to start us off, if you could elaborate a little bit on on what that means. Yeah. I mean, the thing I've always been so fascinated about with the brain is that 
it's locked in silence and darkness in your skull. And yet what we perceive is this full, rich technicolor world with its sounds and its touches and so on. And it's weird because when we study the brain, you just find billions of little cells and little signals passing between them, these very rapid little spikes of activity. And so, you know, it's not that we're just seeing reality out there. It's that our brain takes these this enormous forest of brain cells and extracts patterns and constructs meaning out of this and assigns what we call qualia, which is the private subjective experience that we have. And, and that's what your whole reality is. And of course, there are things like illusions that you know people are interested in when they're fifth graders and then later when they grow up and become neuroscientists. But what illusions teach us is, yeah, we're not, we're not actually seeing the world out there as it is. I mean, for example, you know, there's no, colors don't actually exist in the world. Mm -hmm. All there is is different frequencies of electromagnetic radiation, but your brain assigns colors to these to distinguish these things. So it can spot the ripe fruit against the green leaves it assigns an immediate perceptual experience to different things. But anyway, that's the, that's the part that's always intrigued me about our reality is how, is how constructed it is. I think the, uh, the question of the hard problem of consciousness is one of the things that has fascinated me endlessly. I studied philosophy of mind in college and was a big fan of David Chalmers and the way he put it together. And the question of how the kind of soggy, mushy matter of the brain gives rise to taste and smell and visual perception, I think is an endlessly fascinating one. Where, where is your mind at with respect to the hard problem of consciousness at the moment? Yeah, I mean, that's a, an answer that we don't have right now. For anyone who doesn't know, the hard problem of consciousness is how do you put together these 86 billion neurons and get private subjective experience, the pain of pain, the redness of red, this kind of stuff. In neuroscience, the majority opinion is that somehow it all involves the physical stuff of the brain because when you damage your brain, you get very particular deficits. You can lose the ability to see colors or understand music or name animals or a hundred other things that we see in the clinics every day. But it's not clear how you take physical pieces and parts and add them together to get consciousness. In other words, if I give you 86 billion Tinker Toys and I said, okay, just add one more and then now, ah, now it's, you know, enjoying the beauty of the sunset. It's not clear, you know, how you actually build consciousness out of stuff. So this is one of the fundamental unsolved questions in neuroscience. Well, how would you describe the question that LiveWired, your recent book, was getting at when I was doing my research and, and reading, obviously, what really stood out to me is the way you talked about the topic being going beyond neuroplasticity in a sense. But I would love if you could describe for folks what question you were trying to get at with, with LiveWired. Yeah, the main thing about the book is, you know, understanding, okay, first of all, the question that I've always wondered about is why has one species taken over the whole planet? I mean, we have mm. completely won the game for better or worse. And um, we're so far ahead of other species. And really, it comes down to one thing. I mean, there are lots of other small things, like we have opposable thumbs, we have good larynxes, we have a big prefrontal cortex that allows us to simulate the future and things like that. But, but really, one of the main things is that our brains are so flexible and adaptable. So if you are born as an alligator, you have to relearn how to be an alligator every generation. But if you're born as a human, you get to learn in your first several years of life, essentially everything that humans before you have figured out, and then you springboard from there. So the trick that Mother Nature pulled off with us is making these brains that are so flexible. Now, the technical term for this is brain plasticity. I don't love that term because it came from the, the notion of plastic, where you mold plastic and it holds onto a shape. I think that 
doesn't capture even a fraction of what's going on. Because what's going on is your giant forest of neurons is reconfiguring every moment of your life. In fact, from the beginning of the sentence till now, your brain has changed because you're understanding what I'm saying. And and so, you know, every one of these neurons has like 10,000 connections. They're unplugging, they're replugging, they're seeking, they're changing their strength of connection. So it's a huge system of mind-boggling complexity. And that's why I prefer the term live-wired uh, over plastic. And the other issue there is, the reason I like that term is because we here in the Valley, all we ever talk about is hardware and software, but liveware is a, is a different way of thinking about what's going on in our brains that's very different from anything we know how to build. So engineers around here get praised for doing very trim and concise plans of making these hardware and software layers, but live-wire devices just don't work like that. I'll give you one example from the book. You know, uh, there's this dog that was born without front legs. And so it just walks bipedally. It walks on its back legs. What does that tell you? It tells you dog brains aren't pre-programmed to drive dog bodies. Instead, you know, it just figures out what to do based on what is relevant to it, what it needs. You know, it has to get to the to food and to its mother's nipple and so on. So it just figures out how to walk on back legs. Presumably any dog could do this. They're not sufficiently motivated to do so. But anyway, this is what a live wired system can give you. Live wire. That's a great term. I love that. Do you think that there is scope for us to be able to actually build liveware with BCIs or brain-computer interfaces, for example? And maybe that is how you view what, what you're doing with Neosensory at the moment. You know, what we're doing with Neosensory is we're taking advantage of the live wiring that's already there. To build liveware, I mean, I'm really interested in this. I think we are just at the foot of the mountain. We're just approaching the foot of the mountain. And I'm very eager to launch a liveware company in the next few years but we haven't unlocked all the secrets that Mother Nature is doing under the hood there. Nonetheless, I think this is where the future is. But as far as what I'm doing right now, my company, Neosensory, we're taking advantage of the brain's flexibility by building hardware. As you may know, this started off with a vest, mm-hmm. and then we've we shrunk it down to a wristband, you know, size of a Fitbit. And what this does is it puts information into the body via patterns of vibration. So, for example, with the wristband... One of the things we're doing is for people who are deaf, we you know capture sound on the wristband, turn it into patterns of vibration on the skin, and then come to hear this way. They come to understand what's going on in the world based on what's you know happening on their skin. So that information climbs up their arm, up their spinal cord, and into their brain. And one might think, well, wait, it's not coming in through the ears, so how could you ever understand it as auditory? But this is what I meant at the beginning about how weird it is that the brain is locked away in its vault. It doesn't know. I mean, all all it's ever trying to do is make correlations. So it sees somebody's mouth moving. It feels something on the skin and it starts putting that together. And it says, oh, okay, I see these two signals are correlated. Cool. You know, there's sound coming out, you know, or you clap your hands or you close the microwave door or whatever. And you realize, oh, wait, there's some sound that I'm registering on my skin. And after some months, people are experiencing sound the way that you and I would think of sound. The thing to keep in mind is that when you were an infant, you had to learn how to use your ears. You don't have that knowledge to begin with. Your brain was getting all this weird information in and it correlated with other things and eventually figured out. And then you have the qualia, the internal subjective experience of sound. And it's exactly the same with this wristband. It's interesting. It makes me, uh, (laughs) what comes to mind for me is LSD. It makes me think of synesthesia and the fact that some people at least report being able to smell colors or, you know, or hear numbers, the fact that the mechanism for 
intaking information can be distinct from what we generally think it is. And the example actually that you gave to bring it back to sound on your website it, with Neosensory is that it can help people distinguish hard to hear speech sounds like that versus cat, which I thought was a really interesting example. Yeah, that's right. That's actually our newest product, which we're running very exciting studies on, but we haven't released to the public yet. But the, the product that we have right now is for sound awareness in general. So for people who are deaf, they can hear everything. They hear the, the dog, the alarm clock, the baby crying, the door knock, the every, everything going on around them. They're hearing it, speech, someone calling their name, all that stuff. So our newer product is, is just for recognizing, for distinguishing sounds of speech that are hard to distinguish if you're losing your high frequencies. That's fascinating. So, what, so you mentioned in the next few years, there's scope to potentially build a liveware company. What would that look like? So what that looks like is thinking about the way that animals actually operate in the world. So just as an example, take the Mars rover Spirit, which cost a lot of money. We sent it up to Mars. It was a tremendously successful project. And it rolled around and did its thing. But then it got its right front wheel stuck in the Martian soil. And it eventually beamed its swan song to Earth and died. But if you look at, let's say, a, a wolf that gets its leg caught in a trap, mm-hmm. it chews its leg off. And then it figures out how to walk on three legs. Again, the, the wolf brain isn't programmed to... Is not, it doesn't come pre-programmed to drive a four-legged body. It just figures out what to do. So it says, oh, okay, I only got three legs now. I got to get back to my tribe. So it does that. It's because a wolf is driven by relevance and the demands of its stomach and, um, you know, what, what matters to it. Anyway, the wolf is an example of liveware. The Mars mm-hmm. rover is an example of not liveware. So wouldn't it be great if we could build robots that say, whoa, that's weird. Uh, My right front wheel is stuck. I'm just going to chew it off and figure out how to operate in a different way. Not what I was pre-programmed to do, but I'm just going to figure out. Like um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end of the first Terminator movie, if you remember, his body is getting completely mashed up. He loses his legs and everything, but he keeps going. That's that's what liveware is. Uh, Not so scary. I mean, there's lots of good versions of it, but that's an example of it. It's interesting. Boston Dynamics dog, I think, is, is an interesting example. If people haven't seen that YouTubing, the video of him getting kicked. I don't know if yeah. you've seen yeah, that. Yeah, the way course. he responds is just incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Now that's low-level reflexes, which are super useful. And that's what humans have too. You know, if you come up and push me, I, I can keep my balance um, because of very low-level stuff. Insects have this, rats, dogs. And, and so Boston Dynamics implemented this kind of thing, which is great. But it's different than saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to read to this Boston Dynamics robot a Wikipedia article, and then it's going to know that. It's going to understand something about that that it didn't understand before. But that's what we can do because of our live work. When we look at the Wikipedia article, it actually causes changes in the structure of our neural forests. We're actually absorbing it and changing. And then we have that knowledge in our warehouse to draw upon. So with the Mars rover example, it would literally, it would change and develop itself as an entity as it's encountering problems and obstacles and things like that. Yeah, exactly. The idea is don't pre-program the robot. Instead, you just give the robot the principles that it needs to rewire itself. I mean, look at the way our bodies work. We can, you know, I can walk, right? But I can then jump on a bicycle and then I can go home and jump on my skateboard and then I can jump on rollerblades or a pogo stick or a trampoline. All of these are totally different motor plans for my motor cortex, like my cortex, again, it's locked in darkness, right? And so the very first time as a child going on on a bike, it says, whoa, what What do you mean you've just replaced your legs with two wheels and I have to pedal and do this stuff? Figures it out. It's not that hard. It's, it's really flexible as a system. 
Yes. So instead of pre-programming a robot to say, you're going to be a walking robot, you're going to be a bike riding robot, you say, look, just figure it out. Does that mean, does it necessitate that that robot is conscious or is that, is that distinct? No, nope, distinct. It does not have to be conscious. Yeah, it doesn't have to be conscious. And the key is, I mean, the, the amazing part to me is that Mother Nature has figured all this stuff out. Like we have these, we have the existence proof. In other words, if we were sitting here talking and I was talking about all these wacky ideas, one could justifiably say like, well, yeah, that's total fantasy, right? But we're all carrying around three pounds of this stuff on mm-hmm. our shoulders. We see it every day with seven and a half billion people running around, being able to absorb everything around them and then act appropriately from there. Learn language, learn mathematics, learn how to, you know, do everything such that our world is so different from any other animal on the planet. We have, you know, you and I are sitting in a studio surrounded by electronics and incredible equipment and stuff like that. And it's trivial for us. We just walk in. We know that our species has done this kind of stuff, but could you imagine squirrels building a studio or or dolphins having a podcast? Like they just they're so distant from that. Yeah, it's interesting that that element of live wired the distinguisher between humanity is one of the things I found really just compelling about about the book. To bring to bring it back to neosensory for a moment, what else in in this space, wearables, neurotech, etc are you finding most exciting at the moment? And maybe it's ah. neosensory specific. Yeah, well, I can tell you, in neosensory, what we're doing is, you know, so I mentioned we're doing things with deafness, we're doing things with uh, high-frequency hearing loss. We're also doing stuff with tinnitus, which is where people have ringing in the ear. Now, that sounds maybe like a trivial thing, but 15% of the population has that, and it really can be aversive to people. And we're doing something called bimodal stimulation, where if you play sound and you're feeling the vibration at the same time on your wrist... Um, we do this in a very specific patented way. It relieves the aversiveness of the tinnitus. It doesn't. There's no cure for tinnitus, but it helps people um, in a clinically significant way. And so, you know, this is just another way of manipulating the inputs to the brain, such that we're leveraging brain plasticity, flexibility to change what's going on on the inside. And that's been very uh, successful for us. But the real thing that is so exciting to me is all the stuff that's coming next. I mean, we've got 70 projects um, that either we've done or external developers are working with us on to pass in other kinds of information. So, you know, in my TED Talk, I talked about things like drone pilots or feeling the stock market or scraping Twitter and feeling what's going on on Twitter. But we've done things with detecting electrical fields, you know, so you can feel electromagnetic bubbles around things, you know, for blind people being able to detect everything around them and feel that that way. One person just put together something where detecting snoring and then it wakes you up that way. Uh, You know, for prosthetic limbs, making sure that even though your prosthetic limb is just robotic, that you can feel what its fingertips are feeling, but on your wrist, let's say, Mm -hmm. Um, stuff like this. Anyway, we've got we've got 70 different projects going on. And so that's where all the really exciting stuff for the future is coming in. Super compelling. Yeah. One of Stephen's long-term visions has been to build a biophysical flow detector, something that can, that can track flow states through gathering data on the neurophysiological correlates of flow. Cool. So I'm curious what you think some of the most compelling applications of BCIs or just wearables or neurotech in general is from a peak performance standpoint. What do you think is going to be possible over the next decade or couple of decades in terms of peak performance? So there's two halves to this. One is the detecting, which is uh, mm-hmm. you know what you and Stephen were just talking about. 
And the other is putting information into the body, which is what I'm doing in Neosensory. And I think the combination of those is going to be where a lot of power comes in. So we have a few projects like this where we're, for example, using EEG, and then we feed the information from the EEG into the wristband in a digested way. What you're getting is you're feeling what is normally an invisible state of your body. And there are many versions of this. I mean, for example, we don't have anything yet that can detect the state of your microbiome. But imagine you could. Imagine you could feel that. Obviously, we, we've done things with smartwatches where we feel, you know, your heart rate and your heart rate variability and your galvanic skin response and things like that. And we feed that into the wristband. So the point being that these states of your body, you are experiencing them as they're happening. And we have various sorts of experiments and, and results from this, but I think we haven't even scratched the surface yet of where this could go. So when I think about what this looks like in terms of optimizing human performance, I suspect that it's in that direction of turning some of the invisible visible and having a real-time read of what's going on in your body so that you know exactly when and how to do the things that, uh, that you want to do. And by the way, let me just make a one-second tangent on this because I think this is interesting. So we set this up with the smartwatch where you can feel all your states of your body. So what we did is instead of just passing the information from the watch to our neosensory wristband via Bluetooth, we did it over the internet. Now, why would we possibly do that? It's because we wanted to see what would happen if you, for example, had your wife wear the smartwatch and you're wearing the wristband and you're feeling her physiology from a distance. You know, we're, we're across town from where she is right now. I have no idea if this is good or bad for marriages, but it's just a super interesting thing to think about being plugged into other people's physiology and knowing what they're, and, you know, maybe you'd call and say, you know, hey, honey, you feel stressed out. Is everything okay? And uh, anyway, so I, there, the thing is, I, again, I have no idea if that's going to be useful or if everyone will avoid that, like the plague, but I think there's just a ton of stuff to study as we move forward. The implications of that are incredibly compelling. Even what comes to mind for me there is actually empathy. Yeah. If, you, if you can plug into other people's experience, literally, yeah. the difference that that can make in all sorts of different situations is just, is just mind-blowing. Agreed. You know, the funny part is with empathy, a lot of where we've gotten as a species is because of that. We're not actually just about survival of the fittest. A lot of our a lot of our brain circuitry is about social stuff too. We really care about other people, really empathic. But it's interesting to, to know or to guess whether Mother Nature has optimized our degree of empathy and whether you'd actually want to be tapped into everybody and feeling all mm -hmm. their stuff all the time. Maybe it would mm -hmm. be too much for you. It's hard to know. Yeah, exactly. There's potential for it to be, you know, the ultimate form of suffering, mm -hmm. you know, because it just get, gets exponentially magnified. One of, the, one of the wearables I'm a big fan of at the moment that I'm actually wearing, which is Levels, it's a metabolic fitness tracker, essentially. So it's essentially continuous glucose monitoring plugged into a really, really nice UX. And in terms of what you were mentioning about detecting and inputs and then that output coming back, at the moment, while I have this stuck into my arm, I can eat a donut and then have a, have a glucose spike and my phone buzzes immediately and shows me what's happened and, and what to, to recorrect around. So it's just a su super cool, practical, Terrific. simple example. And it's been making me, as I've been wearing it the last four or five days, it's been just giving me a sense of, I think, how close we are to having real-time data on all of our biometrics and our and our physiology all in all. Absolutely. And, you know, here, here on Stanford campus, there are groups doing incredible stuff with little, you know, skin-thin 
transparent sensors that detect essentially what's coming out in your sweat and being able to say what's going on internally based on these very tiny signals. And so I agree we're we're totally moving towards that. And and it, it's an interesting question. It's sort of, I don't know how to describe this, but it's like we're turning ourselves inside out where all the stuff that normally is completely hidden from view, mm-hmm. we're, we're starting to see like, oh, that's what my blood glucose is doing. That's what my, you know, blood pressure is doing and my heart rate variability is doing things we wouldn't normally be aware of. Now, the question is, how do we use this without getting overwhelmed? Because the quantified self-movement has been sort of dribbling along for a while now. Yeah, decade or so. Exactly. And what happens is people buy something. They're like, wow, look, I can look on my phone. I can see all this stuff. And they do that for a few days. And they think, okay, well, I'm not really sure what's happening with it. So I think it's probably going to dribble along for a little bit longer until people really start nailing down actionable things. And maybe this will be uh, an uh, AI issue meeting biologists, smart biologists really putting things together and finally realizing, ah, okay, when you're getting this kind of signal, you should eat this thing at night and then sleep this many hours and then da, 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 then then it becomes something that everybody can use. Yeah, the quote that comes to mind, I think it's a Gibson quote, is that the future is here. It's just not yet evenly distributed, yeah. which is which is one that I always love. Definitely feels applicable to Stanford in particular as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'd love to pull us into to flow for a moment, and I'm I'm gonna indulge in uh, reading another one of your quotes here, which says that time, much like self, is a summary judgment, a democratic conclusion reached by a vast prefrontal caucus. But this also makes temporal awareness vulnerable to interruption. Because flow deactivates large parts of the neocortex, a number of these areas can go offline, distorting our ability to compute time. So I'm interested if you have any thoughts or comments on the ability for us to interrupt, so to speak, our experience of time. The general thing about time is, you know, Newton thought about this like a river that runs, but of course your brain has to construct this. This comes back to the original quote you mentioned. You know, your brain has to put together this construction of, okay, what just happened when and how long ago and so on. And it turns out I've been studying that for about 20 years and it ain't what you think for several reasons. <laughs> One is that you've got totally separate mechanisms that judge duration, temporal order, like which thing came before which, things like flicker rate. These are all completely different. And so how long you judge something lasted has everything to do with how much memory you have laid down about it. So if you're doing something novel that you've never done and your brain is writing down all kinds of things, and when you look back on that, you say, oh my gosh, it took so long because there was this and that and that. Um, you know, take something like a car accident, right? You, yeah, I'm going to get to the car accident and say, wow, I watched the hood crumple and I looked at the facial expression of the other guy and I saw my rear view mirror fall off and blah, blah, blah. So the assumption is, okay, well, time must have gone in slow motion. I've done studies in my lab. It turns out time is not going in slow motion. What happens is you're laying down more memory. You're, uh, you've got essentially these emergency control systems that kick online, the amygdala, and it writes down a secondary memory track. So as soon as you look back and you say, what just happened? What just happened? You have all this dense memory that you're reading out. And so your brain says, well, I guess that must have taken five seconds, even though in reality it only took one second. So contrast that with when you're doing something really boring at work, you're going in, you've done this for months and months, and and you get to Friday and you think, where the heck did the week go? I can't believe that it's gone already. And it's because you didn't lay down memories of it. So when you look back, you're unable to make any judgment of time. And by the way, during the pandemic for the last 14 months, this has been a 
this has happened to a lot of people where, I mean, it's happened to me all the time where I think, God, did that happen four months ago or eight mm-hmm. months ago that mm-hmm. I talked to my friend? So how we judge time is a matter of all kinds of things. But when it comes to flow, also one of the other issues is whether something is automatized all the way down or not. So when we first start doing something like riding a bike, you know, you have to do all kinds of conscious thinking about it. Oh my gosh, what am I doing? I'm falling, blah, blah. After a while, you get good at riding a bike. You don't pay any conscious attention to it anymore. And therefore, when you're doing something that you are well-trained on and you're in a flow state, you're not necessarily writing down memories of it. So that's why time can feel interrupted because then it's over and you don't really, you know, it's, it's almost like you weren't there. At least retrospectively, you feel like, okay, well, I can't really reconstruct much footage about it. That's, so memory is the primary sort of mechanism of action there. Exactly right. It's how much footage you're able to draw on when your brain says, hey, what just happened? What just happened? Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Are, are there any ways, do you think, that we can alter, intentionally alter our perception of time? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the main thing, of course, is seeking novelty. Mm-hmm. So you know, we all get automatized on most of the things in our lives. And so if we're able to really seek out the things that are challenging and new and we weren't expecting and so on, that's one way to, you know, I'm not telling you how to live longer. I'm telling you how to make it seem (laughs) as though you lived longer, which is, you know, you're just laying down more memory. And there are many ways to do this. Of course, one of them is just pay closer attention to things. You know, and this is uh, this comes out of many ancient philosophies about you know, really looking at the things around you and take you know taking stock of it rather than just running like an automatized zombie like we mostly do. Because you'll store more better footage, essentially. Exactly right. And alter the perception time. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's fascinating. So the first book that I read of yours must have been a while ago now was some forty tales from the afterlives. I, I read it at a time that I was working a ton and exhausted and I would read it before falling asleep every night which resulted in extremely trippy dreams for for a (laughs) month or so and and one of the I haven't even got back to it to do uh, additional research for this conversation because so much of it is still in mind but one of the tales that is still top of mind was a story about what it would be like to turn into a horse and the the intersection point between a Human, a human consciousness wanting to be a horse and then a human becoming a horse and not knowing that it was something else that was wanting to be a horse. Yeah. So I don't know if you can elaborate on, on even just how that emerged and how you came across that idea or, or some of the other tales from the afterlives in, in the book. Some. I mean, I think that particular idea I was thinking about because Hollywood loves this particular trope about, hey, uh, you know, what if I stepped into someone else's body? But if you, if you had someone else's brain, you would be them and you wouldn't remember being you. Because of this whole live wiring thing, your brain is mm-hmm. completely different than my brain because of your entire history of experiences leading up to this moment. And so I always, I always thought there's something funny about this trope because if you actually became something other than you, you wouldn't remember ever being you and having the thought of becoming the something else. So yeah, that was the story. Of, of becoming the horse. And, you know, just before you lose your last of your human faculties, you painfully ponder what magnificent extraterrestrial creature must have chosen in the last round to become a human, right? And so, you know, a lot of this, it's literary fiction, of course, but a lot of it comes from me being a neuroscientist during the day and thinking about these questions. So many of the stories involve various sorts of questions about memory, about time, 
uh, some about physics and, you know, what happens if the arrow of time reverses in the universe and, you know, all kinds of things like that. Yeah, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. I definitely recommend people check it out. It's called Some 40 Tales from from the Afterlives. By the way, it's spelled S-U-M because... Uh, Otherwise, people might spell it S-O-M-E. Right, yes. right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, another another question. This is, again, my own indulgence, but it's something else that stuck with me actually from, from Incognito. I believe the chapter title was I Am Large, I Contain Multitudes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that chapter was just so fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah well, I, I can tell you what it's about. Uh, it's the, yeah, it's that we naively think about the brain as sort of like, okay, who am I? But the fact is that, you're not really an individual in the sense that you cannot be divided up into different things. In fact, what we're all made up of is many, you know, what I should say, what you are made up of is many different neural networks all driving to steer the ship. And who you are at any given time is a matter of of who's winning. So, So the analogy I make is to a neural parliament where you've got all these different political parties and they're voting and they might vote in different ways at different times such that, you know, some party wins or another party wins. But this is what makes people so interesting and fascinating and nuanced. Uh, like, you know, like if I put some warm chocolate chip cookies in front of you, part of your brain says, well, it's a rich energy source. I'm going to eat that. Part of your brain says, don't eat it. You're going to get fat. Part of your brain says, okay, I'll eat it, but I'll, I'll uh, work out later tonight. And you, know, you can cuss at yourself. You can cajole yourself. You can argue with yourself. Uh, you know, who's talking with whom here? The, yeah, the most common way it seems to show up in language is as I and my, like I hate myself, I love myself, I, I want this for myself. So what yeah. do you think people are referring to when they use that sort of language? What, what does the I refer to? What does the my refer yeah. to? Yeah. Oh, I'll tell you, I mean, I think this is just the impoverished nature of language and maybe the impoverished nature of our study of it and of ourselves that we even talk that way. But part of it is short-term versus long-term decision-making, which is sometimes what people mean is my long-term self wants my right now self to not eat the cookies because my long-term self wants to be fit and healthy and my short-term self really wants to stuff that cookie in my face. So sometimes that's what we mean by it. But you know, I think in general, we have all sorts of illusions about who we are and who we're talking to uh, about these things. I mean, just as an example, people all the time screw this up about temptations, where they think like, oh, I, I'm definitely not the type of person who's going to get tempted in this situation. I can handle it. And then they can't handle it. And so, you know, one of the, as an example, like for Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the first things they tell you is clear all the alcohol out of your house. Because even if you think you're not going to drink it again, some festive Saturday night or lonely Sunday night, you're going to break into that. Uh, in drug rehab programs, the first thing they tell you is, look, don't ever carry more than $20 of cash in your pocket because as much as you think you're all set and you're not going to, as soon as someone comes up to you on the street and offers you some drugs, you're going to buy it. So there are these ways that you can essentially try to understand your future behavior and make contracts with your future self where you say, I'm going to bind your behavior so that you mm-hmm. can't do the wrong thing. In other words, I'm going to get rid of the alcohol. Or I'm going to you know, not carry the cash so that I can't do the wrong thing. This is this is what we call a Ulysses contract, and this is the topic of one of my next books. Is uh, I just I'm fascinated by the Ulysses contract. Obviously, it's called that because Ulysses, on his return from the Trojan War, you know, had to pass the island of the Sirens, and so he had his men lash him to the mast because the Ulysses of sound mind knew that the future Ulysses was going to go nuts, and so that's why he bound he lashed himself to the mast. 
Well, it's, I'm delighted you're writing a book on this topic because yeah. it's it's something yeah I hear talked about so much, and I, I haven't seen that much neuroscience on this specific topic. You know, another one of the phrases I always hear is, "I want to heal the relationship with myself," and it it does. It seems like there's some sort of dual self that is conflicting and self-sabotage is when those two parts conflict. It's exactly that, but it's more than two parts. You've got tons of parts that make you up, all of whom want different things. I'll give you, I'll give you a, 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 an example of something like when it comes to, you know, you're standing in the supermarket and you're standing in front of the, whatever, the ice cream aisle and you're trying to choose which ice cream you're getting. It seems like, okay, I'm just going to think, all right, I'll grab that one. But in fact, You've got all these different networks going on. So one of them cares about price point, valuation. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, is that ice cream too expensive? That one? You got other ones that care about emotion. These are in the frontal lobe. You care about the predicted emotional response you're going to get from these. You have other networks that care about social context. In other words, what your friends think of it. Like, oh, do, oh did I hear my friends say they like this one? But my other friend thinks this company is socially irresponsible and runs sweatshops in Pakistan or something. So I'm not going to buy that one. You've got all these things going on. And that's just three out of, you know, whatever, 30 different networks that are all fighting to steer the ship of state at any moment. And so we sabotage ourselves all the time. By sabotage, what we mean is my long-term self, where I think about what kind of person do I want to be? I want to be the type who doesn't do that and does do that. You know, there's a million things that get in my way, including the ice cream aisle, where I see like, okay, yeah, maybe I'll grab some ice cream on my way out. Right. Are there ways, do you think, to decrease the conflict between those different selves and, and for example, uh, maybe maybe integrate's not necessarily the right word, but, but somehow have them play with each other more effectively to achieve long-term goals? Yeah, yeah. And actually, this is part of the book that I'm writing. It's because, th- I mean, these are all simple tricks, but they're all hacks in a sense, but they work. You know, like, okay... I want that, you know, frothy, whipped creamy thing from Starbucks, but I'm only going to get it after I've worked out at the gym. Like, that's my reward to myself after I've worked out at the gym. So that's a way of sort of aligning these things because I'm not, it's not like I can easily suppress wanting that whipped cream thing. So so I say, good, I'm just going to link these networks in a way where they follow one another in a, in a way that's useful for my long-term self. The whole game is about making contracts it's about constraining your future behavior by setting things up in a particular way. Right, right. And yeah, kind I of think ma- that's making the, the long-term self more intimate with the with the short, sort of short-term self, so to speak. Obviously, that's an oversimplification. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, yeah, it's – you can never get rid of the short-term self. All the temptations and desires, you just can't get rid of that, unfortunately. So it's a, it's a matter of how you trick the whole system into getting tied together. Yeah. Do you think it corresponds at all to Freud's id – Ego, superego? Maybe. I think Freud was noticing that there are different drives that we have. And then others like Daniel Kahneman more recently wrote that you've got system one and system two Mm -hmm. thinking. What they were all scratching the surface of is this deeper issue that you actually have multiple things going on. So Kahneman's thing, you know, you know, he's a psychologist. He's obviously super awesome and smart. Um, but, you know, he, he narrowed it down to two different things. But there's so much more than that going on in the brain. Mm. It's, in other words, it's a team of rivals. And that's why I titled that chapter, I Am Large, I Contain Multitudes. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great chapter title and a great quote in general. So one of our favorite questions to ask on Flow Research Collective Radio is what we call the research genie question. 
if you could click your fingers and immediately have all of the research conducted to answer any question, what would that question be? Oh, that's easy. I would uh, have a technology that could read individual neurons, all 86 billion of them, in real time. So you see when these spikes are happening, each of which are, you know, a thousandth of a second. And each neuron is popping off between, you know, 10 and hundreds of times a second. Have something that can actually read that. Not everyone realizes this, but in, in neuroscience, we are in this unbelievably crude early position where we don't have any good way of reading the brain. We have things like functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, brain imaging that you hear about. But, you know, it's terribly crude. It, all it looks for is where you have blood that's oxygenated versus deoxygenated, which serves as a proxy for where there was neural activity. And the spatial resolution just isn't that great. I mean, you're measuring, you know, at best millions of neurons in one cube at a time. And so we can't tell anything about what the neural code is. In other words, you, you see cells popping off and there's some kind of code there. And the way that we decoded DNA uh, in, in 1953, there will be a neural code. And we just have no way of getting at it right now. Because mm -hmm. all we can do is measure, you know, a few cells at a time with by dunking an electrode in there. Or we can measure millions of cells at a time by doing something like fMRI. But the sweet spot lives in between. So happily, you know, technology is on a steeper and steeper exponential uh, every month here. And so maybe it won't, maybe it'll happen in our lifetimes. I really hope so. But there's a bunch of Nobel Prizes waiting in the future there for whoever gets to decode the neural code. And um, that is going to change everything. It's going to take a lot of our neuroscience textbooks. You know, like one of the main textbooks in the field is called Principles of Neuroscience, and it's about 800 pages. Mm -hmm. Well, that means it's not principles, right? Because if it was principles, it would be like a pamphlet. A few. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so um, what it is is all we're doing in neuroscience is just doing this core dump of all the data that we're finding but it's going to be really extraordinary when we turn the corner and start figuring out, ah, this all fits together in these ways. Mm, that's fascinating. It's a great, it's a great answer. So final question is a two-part question. Obviously, as I mentioned in the intro, you know, you're, you're building companies, you're advancing the research, you're writing great books. What is driving you to do that? And what are some of the, the habits or behaviors that sustain you and allow you to do all that you're currently doing. Oh, that's interesting. You know, it's funny. You don't have a control experiment for your own life. So you, you only know what reality is like from inside your own head. But I think the issue is that I do things that I love to do. And I try to the maximum extent possible to avoid the things that I don't really want to do. And so, you know, writing brings me a lot of pleasure it's not true for, in fact, for most people, I have the impression that it doesn't bring me pleasure. So, you know, I try to find windows of time to sit and write. And um, and I guess I never, or I guess I should say when I was younger, I did worry about the way that people were telling me to do it. So, for example, a professor of mine said, look, David, life is like a, a forest and you're a lumberjack and you can't go into the forest and take one whack at each tree because you'll never get anywhere. He was a professor I really liked. And I thought, oh, that seems so wise. And I'm but but I'm not I'm just not that kind of person. I I always am writing five books at the same time, and that it turns out has been a very fruitful strategy for me. Mm. Because anytime I have a cool idea about something, I think, oh, I know exactly which bucket that goes into, and then I stick it there. So I've come to terms with who I am, I guess I would say. And so I just try to find the times to do the things that I maximally like the most and do them the way that I want to do them. 
Nice. Well, yeah, it's working. So <laughs> keep it going. Uh, so finally, David, where where can people find you, support your work, dig into the books? I know a ton of our community are just gonna gonna eat up Live Wired. I know all of your books. And I rec- I really strongly recommend everyone to read at least a few of your books. We always, by the way, we are constantly mentioning uh, Incognito to, to oh, folks. Oh, great. Thanks. So, um, yeah. yeah so, so where can they go deeper? Uh, eagleman.com is my website. And um, if anyone's... Nice inter- domain name. Yeah, yeah. I got that a long time ago. And then um, if anybody is interested in what we're doing at Neosensory, where we're building new senses for humans, it's neosensory.com. And um, we have developers contests all the time. So just in case anyone out there says, you know what, I would really like to read, you know, infrared or ultraviolet information and, f- and feel that and so on, just go to neosensory.com slash developers and uh, download the APIs and the SDKs for that. Amazing. Well, thanks. Thanks so much, Dave. This was a blast. And uh, yeah, just a pleasure having you on the show. Great. Pleasure to be here. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.